Hello, my friend, and welcome to another episode of The Volume Knob, the songs that saved your life. This week, Caddy, and I'll See You in My Dreams. There's a simple but obvious pleasure that I get in making this show every week that I'd like to share with you today. It's that I get to pick the people that I spend time with. Now, most of them, as you may have gathered, are friends of mine, people I've known for a while, but some of them are people that I just admired from a distance previously and had to work up the nerve to ask for a story. And because they're awesome, they said yes. This week's storyteller is definitely one of those people. My name is Caddy Diop. I'm an improviser, a goofball, an auntie. I'm from Montreal, and the song that saved my life is I'll See You in My Dreams by Joe Brown. She's a remarkable performer, an incredibly brave and present storyteller who had always wanted to get to know better. Um, and then I asked her to be on the show. Caddy's story had me thinking of a lot of things this week, including something as simple and basic as the musical instruments that inhabit our favorite songs. Her story is about her relationship with her father, Usainu, who was both gigantic, literally like rugby player gigantic, and figuratively. When I was researching this piece, I found an article about him in the biggest French daily in Montreal, La Presse, where he was called un géant de Montréal africain, literally a giant of African Montreal. Despite this, despite her dad being all things giant, Caddy, as her story will tell you, is reminded of him every time she hears a certain song played on one of the daintiest instruments you can imagine. The ukulele. So on February 7th, 2011, I had a huge existential conversation um, with my father. He was sick at the Jewish General Hospital. Um, He had complications from a kidney transplant that he'd had 10 years before. Um, He'd been on dialysis for a bit. And... He had woken up one night coughing and just uncomfortable and ended up with water in his lungs and was being treated at the hospital. I avoided going to see my dad, I have to admit. I had to wait until my mom called me, threatened me in that very motherly way. Um, You know, and she reminded me that my dad, who had been there from my first breath, wasn't well, and that I needed to be a grown-up, in her words, and put my big girl pants on, and uh, go sit with my dad, even though it was hard um, to see him uh, weak, and to see him sick, and to see him sad. And 
you know, I was going through some stuff. Uh, I was in my mid to late 20s. I, I just, I couldn't, I didn't have enough space for illness, for someone else's vulnerability, because I was discovering my own. My dad and I sat there and we talked for hours. I have no idea what we talked about, but I know that in that conversation, we laughed. We were sincere. I know that I had told him that, you know, I was going to take care of everything while he was in the hospital and that everything would be fine. And then he started to cough. And I stood in front of him as a nurse had like instructed me to and he put his hands around my waist to help with uh you know with his breathing and and with with going through his coughing fit and throughout the whole time my dad was saying i'm so tired of this he was saying it in french he was saying j'en ai marre it's 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 you know beyond exhaustion and i remember that that was a moment where i lost it i lost it I, I broke down. Um, all of a sudden, this big pillar of strength in my life, you know, was, was being so raw with me that I didn't know, I didn't know how to handle it. And the only way that I could was to let it turn into, you know, tears and let them just stream out of my eyes. A few minutes later, I remember my mom getting there with food she had cooked for my dad, which was something that um, we all do in my family because hospital food is dreadful, no matter what they say. And because I was still a little frustrated with my mom, I, I left. I left and I let them have dinner together. It's my mom, my dad, and uh, one of their best friends. And I went home and I felt very weird because I had just gone through many emotions, which I hate. Um, I would rather be a robot at times. And, you know, and I was sitting there and I was, I was watching TV and uh, chatting with some friends. And a friend of mine who was doing her master's in communication wrote to me and she goes, Hey, um, is your dad Usainu Diop? And I went, yeah. And she goes, oh. I'm reading one of his articles for, um, you know, for my master's program about communication in uh, Africa, in West Africa, and how, you know, how to approach it from a non-colonial way. And I sat there, and I had this really interesting adult realization that my dad was a badass. You know, and in that moment, I was just, I was so proud of him. I was like, yeah, that's right. I was like, people doing graduate studies are reading things that my dad wrote because he's smart and because he's tough and because he has experience. And I can't wait to tell him tomorrow, you know? And the next morning, I, you know, put my big girl pants on, got ready to face the music again and, and see my dad um, unwell. And I got to the hospital and he was lying. Um, he was actually uh, in pal palliative care uh, just because that's where they had beds. And he was lying the way that 
I had always seen my father lie, which was an incredibly comforting sight. He was on his back. He had his right leg crossed over his left leg. And he just looked like he was half asleep. And I poked him and he kind of grumbled. And since I understand the value of sleep and its importance, uh, especially uh, growing up in a family with three very loud siblings, I said, hey, I'm going to go grab myself a cup of coffee and I'm going to get you one and I'll come back. But like, wake up, dad, come on. And I went downstairs, I went to the second cup, grabbed two coffees, came back upstairs and sat with my dad and realized that something was off. There was just a little something. And a nurse came in at that moment and I went like, I don't know, my dad's, my dad's just groaning. He's not speaking to me. I was like, he looks awake. And all of a sudden I saw the nurse start speaking to him and then start moving much faster. And she started saying things like, Caddy, has your dad ever had a stroke? Um, To which my answer was obviously no. My dad's a mountain of a man. He's tough. He's the only black man who curls. He's that guy, right? And The nurse said, I think you should call your mom. I think your dad has had a stroke. And um, my uh, world flipped over in that moment because I knew I had to make a really shitty phone call if I can say so. I had to call my mom while she was at work. And I did. And I heard my mother. I heard my mother's voice drop. I heard her stomach sink. I heard 40 years of love freak out. And I hung up and then just went back and sat with my dad and by then he was already they were starting to transport him uh, for a head CT and I leaned over to my dad and I said hey a friend of mine just told me that she was reading one of your articles for school I said you gotta you gotta pull through so that you can argue with me and her about your points. And my dad turned his head and I could understand his, oh yeah, through his garbled speech. And then I gave him a kiss. And that was the end of me and my dad talking. It's important to note that my dad and I um, were famous arguers. Um, I am the youngest of four children. 
he was in his mid forties when I was born. Um, he always loved to say, you got me right in the right time because I'm ready for anything you bring. And I took that as a personal challenge with my dad. I contested everything with him. If he said the sky was blue, I said it was purple just to get a rise out of him. He was an incredibly cultured man, a journalist, uh, an actor, you name it, he'd done it. He loved being challenged. He was an imposing man. He was a boss, a captain of industry, all those things. But I knew that of all my siblings, I was the only one who could call him on his stuff. And that was satisfying. And my dad was a man of complex faith, which I really loved because he grew up culturally Muslim. But, you know, he didn't like rules. Um, he didn't like being told what to eat or not to eat. He believed in love. He believed in being good and helping and showing up. And I remember I used to, I used to make him freak him out, freak out so much just because he would start talking about various religions and I would just contest and contest and contest and tell him, you know, listen, if you really believe that this is true, let someone smite me right now. And he would lose it. It was just such a good way to get a rise out of him. And I'd do it at Christmas parties and everyone would love it because it was basically our show. But all of that in a moment, in one instant, when they put him into that elevator, that was, that was over. My mom showed up, she took over, as moms do. Um, and then we uh, got results and we were told that my dad had had a massive stroke and all of a sudden, we were being told things like, we want to keep him comfortable. Do you have end of life plans? Is there anyone that you should be calling? And it didn't make sense. I was like, this is not actually real. I kept thinking ah, at some point, he's just going to snap out of it. He's my dad. He's the strongest man in the world. And I think most kids who have, you know, good relationships with their fathers, that's how we look at them. And he didn't. He didn't. Um, he didn't move his feet. He didn't, no matter how much I hoped and begged and I'm ashamed to say prayed, um, he didn't get better. On February 10th, 2011, while my mom was brushing her teeth in his hospital room, I leaned over and in my dad's ear I said, It's okay. 
I'll take care of her. We've got this. Go have fun. And my father inhaled for the last time. And I called my mom and he exhaled. And there's this incredible rush of energy that moved through the room because we didn't need a machine to beep. We didn't need a nurse to confirm, but she and I both knew that my dad was gone. And she had toothpaste all around of her mouth and we were so unsure as to how to react that we embraced and started laughing and danced and took a proper two minutes to tell my dad that we were proud of him. Proud of him for trusting us and proud of him for letting go for once. After that, everything kind of turned into a zoo. Uh, being Muslim means that death rites happen extremely quickly. Um, we did all of the things, and by within 48 hours, my father was interred. And, you know, my siblings and I were very confused by what was happening because we are not at all practicing in any sense of the word. And all we did was see this like stream of people and journalists and all these folks we hadn't seen in years going through the house and coming in and eating and praying and sitting and lamenting and crying. And, and there were odd moments like when we ordered Senegalese food uh, from a restaurant and the delivery came and then the delivery guy sat down and started crying and he explained to us that when he moved here, he had been told the story of my dad's immigration and um, he looked up to him even though he didn't know. And then this guy sat down and proceeded to eat all the food that he had just delivered. Um, and it was absolutely ridiculous. We laughed and we told stories and we were impressed by just the outpouring of love um, that came from, you know, my dad's old place of work at CBC International and from elected officials all around the world. And it, it gave me this sense that my dad had been not just this great big figure in my life, but he had been a great big figure, period. And that's pretty badass, you know, just like he was. And after three days of mourning, um, as is customary, you're sp it's supposed to be over. You're supposed to mourn for three days and then you're done, um, which I thought was quite funny because uh, I told all these people like, yep, three days of mourning and then you'll be out of our house and then we can start to mourn. While we were sitting in my mom's basement, listening to all these strangers recite the Quran, me wearing a red veil because it was the 
first scarf I could grab over my face. My mom was making faces at me, trying to keep my spirits up. And I was listening to these men and it was beautiful, you know, listening to, to the Quran being meditate, uh, recited. It's very meditative. It's, it's, it's just, it's these sounds that, that just go through you. And all of a sudden, you know, all that could pop into my head was the song that I had heard when there was a concert put on in the memory of George Harrison, uh, concert that I had seen on like PBS on some Sunday afternoon as one does and it was the very last song and it was Joe Brown and it starts with just him and his ukulele saying I'll see you later to his friend I felt this rush of understanding. I felt an awareness of what it meant to lose someone. And that song just kept playing in my head. It kept spinning round and round and, you know, the idea of seeing someone in your dreams meant that he wasn't really gone. And I held on to that for dear life. I held on to it. And I remember the first time that I dreamt of him. It was me sitting in my parents' dining room, eating. And my dad running in with his very 1977, like, sheepskin uh, winter coat very heavy coat that I loved. As a kid, I used to call it Baba Black Sheep. Like it was the only way I could relate to this thing that was so soft and warm and cozy. And he was running through the house going, where's my freaking briefcase? I'm running late. How dare you sit and eat? I'm in a hurry. Help me. Help me find it. And I broke down in my own dream. And I just clung to him. And he hugged me back and he said, babe, it's fine. I love you, but find my briefcase. And I woke up and I turned back to that song and it sort of became an anthem. Um, on my dad's birthday, I listened to it. On the anniversary of his passing, I listened to it and I let myself... I let myself get vulnerable. I let myself feel. And I give myself a chance to sink into missing my dad. I miss him because I want him to meet my nieces that he never had a chance to meet. I just, I wish he could meet my girlfriend. Fuck, they just drink scotch and make fun of each other like it's not even funny. But at least I know, no matter what, 
I can always turn back to that song. It sounds like him. And every once in a while, I'll be sitting around and there'll be a little fluttering feather. This is very, like, Forrest Gumpy of me, but I always see these little tiny wisps of feathers uh, floating around and they don't want to land on anything. They don't come to the ground. They don't they don't stop moving and at some point you just stop seeing them and looking at those it literally has become the soundtrack to that moment because I choose to believe that that's just a little wisp of my dad saying I'm right here Caddy is a performer and podcaster in Montreal, Quebec. You can follow her on socials at caddy underscore D. That's K-A-D-I underscore D. Hey friend, thanks for listening. The Volume Knob is a weekly exploration of personal stories and the power of music. It's produced by Semlevent Audio, and it's edited, written, mixed, and hosted by me, Kisari. You can follow the show on Twitter at Volume Knob 1, that's the number one, on Instagram at Volume underscore Knob, or you can go to the website, which is www.volumeknob.net, and on the website you can either sign up for the mailing list and hear all kinds of interesting stuff and or read the show notes as virginie in london england points out i do playlists and little paragraphs for background on the songs that are featured every week you might want to check that out extra goodies for you once again i want to thank caddy for her wonderful story this week you can google her to find out the large variety of interesting things she does or you can check out and you can check out her podcast which is called yeah for young adult literature she and her co-hosts hold very interesting discussions of young adult books finally i want to thank kate for her 30 second review of i'll see you in my dreams so tell me what you think i thought that it was kind of like a grandpa singing like they say our grandpa but you take off the um the scottish accent and that's what it sounded like it's like it's, it sounds like grandpa dave with a ukulele yeah Why? i don't know just sounded like an old person singing once again i hope to see you next week on the volume knob for more stories about the songs that saved your life